The sermon for this afternoon was prepared by Reverend Rolf Denhollander, Minister of the Covenant Canadian Reformed Church at Grassy, Ontario. After the sermon, we will sing in response from Psalm 34, the stanzas 2 and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, hopefully at some point you've noticed that the Catechism's explanation of these petitions is unique. There is a change from the rest of the Catechism. It's not just an explanation of the petition, it's also a rephrasing. The questions and answers can be taken up as a prayer. It's not grant that we and all men may deny our own will and obey God's will. No, it says your will, as though in the catechism we are addressing our Father in heaven. So when it's all said and done, we're left with a beautiful expansion of the Lord's Prayer, that prayer that Christ himself taught us. But Jesus didn't only teach us to pray by words, but also by deeds, and especially in this third petition. He shows us what it means to pray, your will be done, God's will. That's usually understood to be either revealed or secret. It's either what he wrote in his word or what he has declared since eternity. The focus in our third petition is on what he revealed. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Of course, his decree is done in heaven, the same as on earth. Jesus teaches us to think about God's revealed will being done, about living in obedience to his will, submitting to his will and knowing his will. He teaches us then to set our minds on the things of God, and that's our summary for this afternoon. Jesus teaches us to set our mind on the things of God, and this involves, in the first place, willing cross-bearing, in the second place, growing submission, and in the third place, increasing clarity. Willing cross-bearing. The first part of that expansion of the third petition is, grant that we and all men may deny our own will. That expression comes from what we read in Matthew 16, but it's only part of what Jesus says. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Not only do we deny ourselves, deny our own will, we willingly take up our cross to follow him. We could say there's two parts to following him. Deny our own will and take up our cross. Self-denial is something people talk about at a time of Lent. Jesus was here preparing for his coming death and resurrection. That's Lent, the time before Good Friday and Easter. Then people take up this idea of self-denial, but it's almost made to be cheap and empty. Then you hear people say they're going to give up chocolate for Lent. No chocolate Easter bunnies. As if that has anything to do with Jesus' words here. 
although there is something to doing that once in a while with things we find ourselves indulging in a little bit too often, eating habits, drinking habits. Denying ourselves from that in a, once in a while might tell us just how much we depend on it. But denying our own will or self-denial is so much more. It's to deny the thoughts and desires of our old self. Then the first thing we have to do is recognize what those thoughts and desires of old self are. Me, myself, and I. By nature, they rule the day. Ever since the fall into sin, we, I, want to be Lord of my own domain, to do things the way I want, to live the way I please, make the decisions I like. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did when they listened to the serpent? He said, you will be like God. And that's exactly what we wanted, to be God. God of our own life. That's the self, the sinful self. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Our Lord's Day summarizes it when it says, grant that we and all men may deny our own will. We want to say no to some of the things that our sinful self may want to do. We don't just give in to our own desires. How tempting it is to justify those desires, as though God's word is not clear about what needs to be denied. Then God's black and white commands suddenly are gray areas, like when it comes to our use of alcohol, sexual purity, forms of entertainment. Denying our own will is painful. Sometimes it feels so good to give into it. It gives us so much pleasure when we get, and we get great enjoyment out of it. We can fill in our own it here. There's drinking, Drugs, pornography, movies, music, video games, and the list goes on. But does any of it contribute to our life as a child of God? No. If not, then we must deny it. That will not be easy. That's why alongside denying our own will is willing cross-bearing. Denying our own will, we could say, is something more private. James even talks about your passions at war within you, James 4, verse 1. Those desires that we have to deny are within. Willing cross-bearing is more public. The disciples that Jesus is talking to would know what he was referring to by taking up your cross. We know it from Jesus' own crucifixion, how he had to bear his cross. It was hard, painful work, especially because of the flogging and beatings they endured first. So much suffering. It's not just denying our own will. It's also cross-bearing. That's public suffering, even to the point of death. Sometimes this expression is used to speak about troubles in general. Especially the seniors here might know the Dutch expression, either house heeft zijn kruis. 
a nice rhyme that you can't duplicate in English, but basically means every house has its cross. The point is that in every house there are unique troubles and burdens to bear, and that's true. But it's not exactly what Jesus is getting at. He's speaking more about a direct relationship between living for him and suffering for him, possibly even to the point of death. And that's what we pray for, not just denying our will, but also taking up the cross. The decision must be made. Jesus says, are you ready to die for me? Taking up your cross means that you will patiently have to endure scorn and mockery when you will not compromise on the things of God, His will. Taking up your cross means that you may face hatred and abuse when you won't just go with the flow. Taking up your cross means that you may have to listen to the laughter of friends when you don't participate with them in their worldly fun. Taking up your cross means defending the holiness of God and His Word, even if it means being charged with hate crimes. Taking up your cross means that you may stand up for Christ and confess His name, even when you know that it will affect relationships, even within your own family, for the sake of Christ. Jesus isn't looking for closet disciples. Those who set their mind on the things of God are out in the open. They know that suffering and death are real possibilities. And the rest of the New Testament confirms the truth of Jesus' words. These very disciples would suffer, and some tremendously, as described in Hebrews 11:35 and following. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. Life in the Western world for the last quite a long time now has been a bit abnormal, actually. As a formerly Christian nation, life in the church became quite comfortable. Christian morals and principles were commonly upheld. Not much reason for mockery there, but that's not really the case anymore. As much as we sometimes bemoan that, it shouldn't be a surprise to us. What's more surprising in a way is how long it lasted. Jesus warned his disciples elsewhere that if they hated him, they'd hate them too. And now we are finally starting to feel that more as well. Speaking up for God and his word, defending the Lord Jesus Christ, may earn you ridicule now. Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world. Dying for Christ isn't just theory, it's reality. Christians, members of Christ, children of the Father, have to make those decisions all the time. This certainly is no health and wealth gospel, where faith in Christ is a life of leisure. No, there's suffering and struggle when you set your mind on the things of God. 
Deny your own will and take up his cross. Are you ready to die for me? Yes or no? Is that an agonizing question? I certainly wrestle with it sometimes. Would I? A gun to my head? A knife to my throat? Seems like a world away in Winnipeg, but it happens. The very thought makes my heart pound. Am I ready? Can I deny my own will that much? A will that would cling to life and willingly bear that cross? Then I am comforted by my Savior's teaching to pray, not only in this petition, but also in his life. I see him there in the Garden of Gethsemane, his soul very sorrowful even to death. Why? Because of the cross that he would bear. He knew it would be difficult. He didn't pursue it eagerly. It would involve much pain and agony. And so he prayed. He fell on his face, humbled before his father, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That tells me he knew the cost. He knew how much he would have to suffer. Calvin says, it was not simple horror of death and passing, passing away from the world, but the sight of the dread tribunal of God that came to him. The judge himself armed with vengeance beyond understanding. Our sins whose burden was laid on him, weighed on him in their vast mass. No wonder if death's fearful abyss tormented him grievously with fear and anguish. If it be possible, Jesus said, denying our own will and cross-bearing is daunting, agonizing, and for him that much more, because it would come under the severe wrath of God over our sin. And yet he was willing. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He does himself what he teaches us to pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help me, Father, to deny my own will and to take up the cross and follow you, painful as I know it will be. Strengthen me, Father, to do what I know is necessary. To pray that and to accept that involves growing submission. And that's our second point. Growing submission. Our Lord's Day's expansion of the third petition continues. Grant that we and all men may deny our own will and without any murmuring, obey your will. Without any murmuring, obey your will. When I hear that word murmuring, I always have to think back to Israel in the wilderness. Murmuring, that's what we call an onomatopoeia. It's a word that sounds like what it is, like crash. You only have to say the word and already you sense what it means. Murmuring, that was Israel's reaction in the desert. 
Moses says in Deuteronomy 1, verse 27, You murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he brought us out of the land of Egypt. It means they grumbled and complained. They talked under their breath and talked back to the Lord. You know how that goes, don't you, boys and girls? When your parents lay down some rules or enforce the rules, when your teacher gives you a load of homework, murmuring, just say the word and see the expression on the face, the movement of the lips, the sound that is barely escaping, murmuring. Israel murmured because they figured they knew better. Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? It was much better there, as though their will was better than God's will. Our prayer is that we'd obey God's will without any murmuring. No talking back to God. No grumbling about His will. No talking under our breath to Him. Just obedience. It's fair to say, though, that without any murmuring doesn't mean without any wrestling. Murmuring is a reaction against God's will. Wrestling can be a process of accepting God's will. Obedience to His will can involve wrestling with His will. Think of what we read in Hebrews 5, verse 7 and following. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Prayers, supplications, loud cries and tears. Jesus learned obedience through suffering. And what is this referring to? What we read in Matthew 26. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There he learned obedience to his Father's will. He didn't murmur against his father's will, but as he suffered, he wrestled with his father's will and grew in submission to his father's will. The first time he prays, he says, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus' prayer reveals he is truly man. Although he knows that this is the path he must take, he prays, if it is possible. Jesus is in anguish and prays that the cup may be taken from him. His agony is even so severe that when he prays, his sweat drips down like great drops of blood. Yet he submits to his Father's will. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Those were his prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. When Jesus comes to the disciples and finds them sleeping, after gently rebuking them, he returns to pray a second time. Then he says, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Notice the change in his prayers. At first, Jesus prays, If it is possible as though it may be possible that this hour of suffering could still pass. 
Now, however, Jesus, in the middle of his suffering and agony, bows himself to his Father's will. When he says, if this cannot pass, he recognizes that this is the way he must go alone. Even his closest friends can't stay awake to keep watch with him. Jesus is alone in his suffering, and through that suffering, he learns obedience to the Father. He grows in submission. He has wrestled with his Father's will, and his prayer changes. No longer does he pray that the cup might pass, but only that the Father's will be done. Even if that can only be when Jesus drinks the cup. Your will be done. In growing submission, Jesus prays his own petition. After coming back the second time, Jesus finds him sleeping again, not being watchful in prayer as he warned. Jesus leaves them alone and once more returns to pray. This time he prays the very same words. By now he has fully submitted himself to what must soon take place. Only the Father's will must be done. So when Jesus returns the third time and his disciples are still sleeping, he rebukes them and then rouses them to get going. By his prayers and tears, Jesus gained new strength from heaven. He wrestled with his Father's will in anguish. He came before his Father in prayer that he might bear his, in his body the curse which lay on us. Then he could win the victory. As he finishes his prayer the third time, his fears are put to rest and he has regained his nerve. He's ready to offer himself as a willing sacrifice to the Father. He says, See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He goes to meet certain death. Your will be done. I have wrestled with that in anguish, suffered under it immensely, but I am ready to obey it fully. What a beautiful picture of our Savior, beloved, because he is then teaching us the meaning of this third petition, not just by words, but also by deeds. We have our own sinful rebellion to contend with. Stubbornness, unwillingness, rebelliousness. What makes obedience to his will that much more difficult? But even Jesus, without any murmuring, grew in his submission to his Father's will. And that ties our petition this afternoon closely to what we heard last week. Your kingdom come. That is, so rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. Our Father in heaven, you have made your will known in your word. And we rest assured that you will have a will of decree and purpose. And that you will carry it out. Help us more and more to submit to it, to grow in it, even as we wrestle with knowing it, because we trust that your will alone is good. That, 
that we are confident will become increasingly clear. And that's our third point. Increasing clarity. Your will alone is good. That's a powerful confession of faith. What do you think of when you hear the word alone? We know what that word means, don't we? Alone is alone, all by itself. Nothing else beside it. It's exclusive. Father, your will alone is good. It's the only right way to live. The only true guide for our lives. You alone know what's best. That is a confession of dependence on the Father alone. That goes against our grain. Against the very grain of our culture too. No one can have such power. But the will of our Father is right and true. It alone is good. Is that difficult to say? When we speak about God's will of decree, remember his hidden will. Then we often receive comfort in difficult times from Paul's words. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And we turn to the example of Joseph and his brothers. Then Joseph said to them about selling him into slavery, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Then we trust that the Father's will of decree, his eternal purpose, will work itself out. In the end, we will always see that he always works things for our good. That becomes increasingly clear. Perhaps you can see that in your own lives already too with certain things. I certainly can. What about God's revealed will? His will of desire? It's his law, his statutes, his commands, his decrees. It's his holy and divine word, all of it. It alone is good. If we're honest with ourselves, that's difficult to acknowledge sometimes. God's will is good when he commands us not to look for a partner who does not love and serve the Lord according to the Bible. It's good when he tells husbands to love their wives, even when they sometimes make that difficult. It's good when he commands wives to be subject to their husbands, and not only when it suits them. It's good when he requires us to love our brother and sister from the heart and to promote their honor and reputation, even when they can be so bothersome sometimes. It's good when he forbids adultery. Adultery is described in the Catechism as all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. It's good when he calls us to be faithful in attending worship services. It's good when he forbids drunkenness and party spirit. It's good when he forbids idols like addictions of various kinds. It's good when he demands not only our hearts, but also our wallets when it comes to showing thankfulness in the first fruits. It alone is good. 
That's not the way our society would see it. The way they see it, laws limit freedom. Living that way is no fun. Instead, it's all about the pursuit of happiness and fulfillment. And for everyone, that will be different. Discover your own way. Do what makes you happy and comfortable. It's all about freedom to do as you please. It affects relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children, boyfriend and girlfriend. It influences the way that we look at authority, those in authority and under authority. There is no absolute right and wrong, no truth for all. It all depends on how you look at it, how you receive it. It all fits with this me idolatry. I am my own idol. I will believe how I want to believe. I will worship how I want to worship. I believe there is a God, just maybe not the same way you do. And you certainly can't tell me how to live my life. That message rubs off. Don't we have to answer for ourselves what works best for us? And we we can come up with all kinds of excuses why God's word doesn't apply to us in our circumstances or has little to say about this matter. Indeed, this is a confession of trust to say, your will alone is good. Why is premarital sex so bad? Why is pornography so bad? Why is addiction to alcohol so bad? Why is skipping out on church so bad? Perhaps it's not always clear in the moment. Sin is blind. But it becomes increasingly clear. When a husband and wife deal with the effects of premarital sex when they are finally married. When the pornography viewed in his youth impacts trust later. When the damage done by alcohol is manifest in time. When the next generation hardly attends church at all. The laws you have set in place, the commands you have delivered are good, perfectly good. After all, he is our father. A father wants what's best for his children. You fathers don't set down house rules to make life miserable for your kids, do you? Especially for the little children. We set rules that might not They might not first understand, but see as good later. Don't go on the road, right? As much as our sinful nature rebels against it, it is good. We may not always see it that way, but it is good. We don't come to acknowledge that of ourselves. Instead, it exposes how much we need to deny ourselves, as we heard in the first point. Not my will be done, but yours alone, for it alone is good. And again, we may see, in our, see that in our Lord Jesus Christ. He obeyed his Father's will in everything, even when he knew that it would lead to his agonizing death on the cross. Father, if it is possible, may this cup pass from me, yet not my but your will be done. Father, help me to bear this cross, to face the scorn and mockery that will come from my own people when I carry their sins to the cross. The Son obeyed the will of his Father in everything, 
He expressed his complete dependence on his Father's will. He did it for the sins of his people. He did it for us. And all throughout his life, it became increasingly clear, this alone is good. And because of his work, in time, God's will as good will be perfectly clear. Until then, we pray, your will be done. Jesus teaches us in word and deed to set our mind on the things of God. Then our prayer is that we would bear the cross willingly, grow in our submission, and gain increasing clarity. What an important thing to pray. Amen. Let us sing in response to the sermon from Psalm 40, the stanza 1 and 2.